An aging thief agrees to steal a priceless French scepter with the help of a young accomplice. Join us as we talk about taking inspiration from a keg, hacking a 10-digit code, and the best of the puppet pantheon. Then we find out if 2001's The Score stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone and welcome to the test of time. We are almost at episode 400. Stay tuned, that'll be a fun episode. I'm James Brief and joining me as always is my buddy and the director of this podcast, Alan Noah. Hi, how you doing James? I'm great and you and I in the podcast, would you say it's like De Niro and Brando? Are you saying De Niro and Brando in their respective primes or De Niro and Brando in the 2001 movie The Score? No, I'm saying uh, you've let yourself go a little bit and you're a late Brando. I'm just kidding, <gasps> Al. I'm done. No, seriously. <gasps> Among the two of us, there's one of us who have done a full half marathon, 10Ks, uh, and it is not me. So, uh, yes, I, of course, I am joking about that. Your figure's wonderful, Al. Why, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, but uh, This hey- is the part where you say I look great too, Al. Oh, um, yeah, hey, listen, I'll help you train for a half marathon or any of these things, man. Thank you, Al. I, I can't wait. <laughs> you look great too, James, of course. So you picked this movie because you just like heist movies? Is, is that the inspiration? I actually do love heist films. Um, when you watch a film like this, you'll see it's, it's definitely got a lot of elements of other films that we've seen in, in this genre. I'm talking about films like uh, the Oceans films that we've seen, the Oceans trilogy and, uh, and Oceans 8. Um, we reviewed uh, The Italian Job. Right. Um, that That's kind of a slick, uh, you know, very elaborate, like step one, two through seven have to happen. And we have six backups to that. Also um, with Ed Norton. Yeah, right. Also with Ed Norton. I haven't seen this film in 25 years, but uh, I remember thinking it was great. A movie called The Thomas Crown Affair. Right. I don't know if you've seen that. That That's a heist film. I haven't seen it, but heard of it. I, I like this genre. They're not all great, but for me, I, I, I do find it kind of fun. I get that. I don't know that I necessarily gravitate towards that genre. I mean, I loved Ocean's Eleven as much as the next guy, but I can't really like rattle off any other heist movies off the top of my head that I'm like, oh, you know, it's another great one, except maybe The Great Muppet Caper. You know, obviously that that's right up there with Ocean's. Not really. <laughs> um, but I don't hate them, but I wouldn't say that it's a, like a go-to for me either. Well, for me, it depends on uh, a couple things. It depends on the plot, kind of like what the MacGuffin of what they're stealing. It doesn't matter. In this film, it's a scepter or it's a diamond or at Ocean's Eleven, it's just money. Like, who cares? It doesn't matter. Uh, I do like the slickness of it, kind of the technology of it, but not too. I don't like anything sci fi. Okay. Um, probably my least favorite thing in Ocean's Eleven was they when they like detonate this EMP pulse that 
takes out like all of Las Vegas. Uh, I do like, just kind of like uh, tricking people. And then the, you're wearing the costumes to impersonate people. And I like that. In this film, uh, Edward Norton, who's done a, in a lot of films, uh, he's played two different personalities. Uh, yeah, this film, uh, Primal Fear, right. uh, that we did, uh, the, the Incredible Hulk. He's he's Fight Club, kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, kind of because it's Brad oh, Pitt. Right. Uh, a little Spoiler bit. alert, I guess. Right. I like that element there. And I also like uh, just kind of the, uh, is there a twist or will the twist be that there's no twist or uh, there's usually something kind of cool and I want to see how clever it is. And I had seen this film, I think once, I didn't really remember much about it. I saw it was on and I said, yeah, let's, uh, let's try the score. You know, it's Marlon Brando, kind of fun. Let's, let's check it out. Just because you mentioned that and because you mentioned that Marlon Brando had let himself go, the next time we do a Marlon Brando movie, this is my request. Let's do a young Marlon Brando movie. Let's do a movie where he's like hot, where he was like the sexy heartthrob kind of guy. But Streetcar. Sure. Let's do Streetcar Name Desire. I don't think I've ever seen that one or any movie where he was like really young and buff and a heartthrob. Was it Marge that Marge Simpson that said like Marlon Brando was so good looking and that I've never seen it, but uh, someone would basically say that he's incredibly handsome. I've seen it referenced in some film that it's specifically that movie. Okay, I feel like I only know him as an older guy, as young with air quotes as Jor-El or Vito Corleone when he was not particularly young. So, well, to be fair, Vito Corleone, he was only like 40-something uh, as an actor. They made him look like he was like, you know, 60 or something. Right, right. But let, let's go to when he was like a, a dapper young gentleman next time. Sure. But for this movie, the score, for anyone who doesn't remember, is about a guy named Nick who's a veteran safecracker looking to retire from a life of crime. Nick is lured back for one final job by his longtime associate, Max. Max introduces Nick to a talented but impulsive young thief named Jack. Together, they design an intricate plan to steal a priceless French scepter from the Montreal Customs House. The heist challenges Nick's skills, loyalties, and his ability to stay one step ahead of the law and anyone else in his way. So this movie came out in 2001. I got to tell you, I have no memory of it. I'd never heard of it. I definitely had never seen it until a couple of days ago. So how did it do when it uh, came out? You know, I would normally think this film did pretty well. Uh, it wound up with $71 million domestically, $113 million worldwide. But I was surprised to see a $68 million budget. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I wonder if it was something silly like Brando uh, demanded and got like $8 million for his probably two days of shooting. I don't know what it was. I mean, it's a great cast. I don't think Edward Norton at this point could uh, demand too much, but certainly De Niro. I don't know. I don't know where the $68 million comes from. But uh, it opened uh, on July 13th, uh, 2001, at number two with $19 million. It lost by $1 million. It almost made uh, number one uh, a movie that we are definitely going to uh, review at some point. And here's a hint. What well, launched uh, an actress into superstardom. Okay. And it takes place at Harvard. Harvard. Hmm. Not Harvard undergrad. Harvard grad school, Harvard med, Harvard law. Harvard legal, law. Legally blonde. That's right. Har legally blonde. Right. Well, I, I've been holding that on the list for when Legally Blonde 3 comes out, which was definitely coming out in 2021 and in 2022. And they've just 
kept pushing that back over and over and over again. Well, all we know is that there's no way that that IP is going to die. Whether it's going to be Legally Blonde, the Netflix series that's going to last one season, or if it's going to be Legally Blonde 3. I do think, uh, you know, we got to wait for this one. Right, 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 right. So out of the gate, I was thinking of you when I pushed play on this movie. I don't think it's recently that you've mentioned it, but you have talked before about movies with very boring credits. And oh my fucking God, was I bored in this movie's credits. It is so, so very slow. I was super bored. I was wondering if you were bored. I remember thinking like, yeah, this is the part I don't have to watch because I was like doing something else and I was like, yeah, I'll keep an eye on the screen. But I, I, I think I was like cleaning something up and getting a snack for the movie. And I remember like, okay, I got about a minute here. What was like two minutes or something? Oh, no, no, no. I checked the clock on it. It was 10 minutes in when you see on screen directed by Frank Oz. Now, to be fair, there is a kind of a cold open where you see Nick doing like a a safe cracking job and the credits aren't happening through all of that. But when you think of like a James Bond movie that has those cold opens and then they go into the credits, those scenes are usually, not always, action-packed and thrilling and they they hook you once the movie starts this cold open was boring as shit because it's a guy cracking a safe and he's working alone and it's a lot of just technical stuff and i can believe that that's maybe realistic but as the opening scene of this movie i was really really bored and then the credits start and it's just fading out as de niro gets into the van fade to black and then he's driving in the van fade to black then he gets in a boat fade to black then he's on the boat fade to black it just goes on and 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 i was really really bored also the score for this movie called the score is god fucking awful here is how the score goes womp 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 womp. Ten minutes of that. Just out of the gate, I was really, really fucking bored and annoyed. And then at the ten minute mark when it said directed by Frank Oz, I was like, okay, is the movie going to start to like pick up and get more exciting now? It didn't. Just like all these uh, heist films, there's a big thrilling heist at the end. I was surprised that there weren't other, I would say, very thrilling elements scattered throughout. There there were some, like there's one scene in the park and Edward Norton does his thing and he pulls out a gun. and There's some exciting parts there, but I was surprised that there weren't more uh, robberies. Almost like the, uh, the, the Italian job. It opens up on this very elaborate heist in Venice and then it goes to the Swiss Alps and it's underwater and it's, you know, yeah. it establishes, I mean, this is going to be a thrilling, you know, fast cuts. And uh, I thought that that's what this was going to be because there are a lot of similarities to uh, the Italian job at this film. It is in a different direction. You're right. It's not one of these uh, slick Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh, uh, uh, Italian job kind of heist films. No, no, it's not. And because you mentioned that scene in the park with the hackers, I thought that was also just very, very slow and really, really anticlimactic because the whole reason that they 
are doing this is because Nick has this hacker that he works with. He's a really, really great hacker, but he runs into some other counter hacker. And so he needs to bribe this counter hacker for this uncrackable code. The code is three digits and then three digits and then four digits. It's a 10 fucking digit code that this expert hacker couldn't crack and then they have to bribe this other guy $50,000 and there's this air quotes 10 scene at the park when they're doing the handoff. It's like for a 10 fucking digit code? That's it? It's fair to say that they could have put a little techno babble in there, you know. You know okay. It's a hundred twenty-eight bit uh, encoded uh, ten-digit cipher. There's no way to break through that without a supercomputer. Sure, uh, that, that could have made it sound like uh, there's no way they're gonna get it in time. That that's fair. The guy pushes send, and then on the other guy's screen, you'd see a lot of just green matrixy kind of code going by, and that's what you paid for. Oh, okay, that's what we needed. But yeah, just to rattle off uh, a social security number, basically, is like, this is pretty fucking stupid. And let's talk about Edward Norton in this movie playing a character who is doing an impression of somebody who is mentally challenged. This really did not sit right with me right from the jump because... You very quickly understand that he is doing this voice and affecting this personality as part of his plan to infiltrate the customs house so he can gain the trust of the the security guards and have access and no one's going to look at him and no one's going to think of him as a threat. I get that, but it just feels really icky. You know, it's different from Dustin Hoffman doing Rain Man, because when Dustin Hoffman is portraying Rain Man, he is portraying him as a real fleshed out human being. In this movie, it's done so that this guy can steal. And it just feels really, really shitty. Did that bother you? No, no, it didn't. I, I thought it's it's something the character would do. This guy's a scumbag. You know, he's, he seems to have mental and motor challenges. He's got contractions with his arms and he's doing that stuff and kind of like a little stutter. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's a successful thing that he's trying to do because, yes, uh, you know, he's taking advantage of people's empathy. And that that sweet old man uh, who, who's a nice guy and, he, you know, this, this guy, you know, he thinks he has some kind of, uh, mental disability. Oh, sure. He's gonna, you know, maybe you don't have to watch every little security thing he does. And as he beeps past the metal detector with his radio he likes to hold, sure. You know, we're not gonna, like, strip search this poor guy. I, I think he's doing an acting job. I, I I think that the character's doing it for a logical reason. He's not making fun of anyone. I think the character who, in the end, we know is, is a scumbag guy, I do get it. And to answer your question, no, it doesn't bother me on a how dare he make this character uh, the way he did. I think you touched on something there, which is that at the end of the movie, we find out that Jack is a bad guy. There's a double cross. Not only was he messing with all the people at the customs house, he was going to fuck over Nick. And Nick is our hero. We love Nick. Nick is our guy. But for most of the movie, you want Nick and Jack to successfully steal the scepter. So... You're kind of rooting for this guy who is affecting this fake persona. I think also it was colored by the fact that 
as you mentioned earlier, Ed Norton does something not exactly similar, but somewhat analogous in Primal Fear. And in Primal Fear, that guy is just pure evil and he is sick and twisted. And that was kind of, quite frankly, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, showing off that Ed Norton can do this kind of acting and that kind of really gave a, a boost to his career. He Matt, got an Oscar nomination. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and, uh, and uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon talk about that that was their inspiration to to write Goodwill Hunting because they wanted to have a part like that and they were just so jealous of the amazing job that Ed Norton did in Primal Fear. So for him to kind of like go back to that well and be like, I can do another kind of air quotes impression, I just found it very, very off-putting. And it's made a little bit better by the fact that at the end we find out that he was a, a true piece of shit. If they hadn't done that twist at the end and he was a good guy and Nick and Jack ride off into the sunset together, it would have been worse, definitely. But I think it's still pretty shitty. Uh, I think you're hung up on the fact that he plays this uh, mentally challenged character more more than I am. I, I just okay. don't I just don't have a problem with it in in the the logic of it's a pretty clever plan. He's taking advantage of other people's sympathy towards someone else's tough situation. You, you know what I think it, it also is. It's something we talked about in our episode about the Italian job, which is that when you have a heist movie. There's this very, very basic, literally biblical thing, right? Thou shalt not steal. And we're watching people steal and we like them because they're doing something bad, but we're cheering for them. We want them to steal this thing. And so usually what they do is they make it so that the person that they're stealing from is really, really bad. They're evil. It's okay. It's justified in some way that they are stealing this thing so that we as the movie audience are allowed to kind of cheer for them. And I felt like that was very, very lacking in this movie, especially with Jack as he's doing this accent. And also for Nick, because Nick is stealing this scepter. At first, he's just doing it so he can pay off his mortgage. He's doing fine. He's got money. He has this jazz club. He's going to retire. But if he gets a huge payday from this, then he won't ever have to worry about anything ever again. And as a guy with a mortgage, sure, that sounds nice, but that's a pretty like thin motivation. It's still stealing a priceless artifact and I didn't have like that feeling in uh, in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, what's his name? Andy Garcia, the guy who owns that casino. Ooh, you hate him. You're seething with rage at that guy. Steal all of his money. I don't care. I'm rooting for you. Right. And in the Italian job, they're stealing from Edward Norton. Exactly. Like, yeah, get revenge on this guy. The actual MacGuffin in this film, it's it's a scepter. It's so random. Yeah. Uh, I agree they could have talked a little bit more about it, but they're not stealing from an evil guy. They're not stealing from a drug dealer. Right. Uh, they didn't throw something in like that. I always do wonder, like, yeah, it's worth uh, $10 million or something, but 
who's going to buy this thing? Yeah. I, I, I assume the only people that can buy it, which is someone in the dark part of the world, meaning uh, there's some stolen Van Gogh at some uh, cartel boss's wall or some, you know, someone in some part of the world. But I did not acquire this painting through Sotheby's, you know? Right, right. And Max, the Marlon Brando character, he's the fence. He's going to move it. And then we also find that he just is going to pay off some other mob guy who he owes money to and his life is on the line and that's why it's so important to Max and so that's why it becomes so important to Nick because Nick likes Max. The stakes are not there for me. I just couldn't really connect. We also didn't talk about Nick and his girlfriend Diane played by Angela Bassett. It's a trope. I mean, you you kind of said that earlier, like this movie has a lot of cliches. Nick is ready to retire and settle down and live a, a nice normal life with Diane and then he takes this job and then Diane is furious with him. I thought you said you were quitting and I thought we were going to have this nice normal life. Why did you suggest that if you were going to do another job and then you'll never quit and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I mean, she's got a point, And usually in these kinds of movies, the person who says don't do the job, it's too risky. Yeah, usually they have a point. But I just didn't really understand why. Nick was going through with it anyway. Usually in the heist movies, you kind of get that like, no, no, this is something that they have to do. I didn't really feel like Nick had to do this. There is something of a cliche here that uh, one more mission is going to do. It's nothing new. When you say coming out of retirement, it clearly gives the audience a sense of this guy knows what he's doing. I don't have to see it necessarily. So, okay. Fair. But we do see it a lot in this movie. And by it, I mean the the mechanics of the heist and the planning of it. And that makes sense, right? Because they have to go in these tunnels underground to break into the customs house. Okay, sure, that makes sense. I found those scenes really, really boring. When you see Nick cutting into the safe, It's a very slow, methodical process. I bet that's what it really is. I bet if you had to watch a real-life safecracker stealing untold riches, the idea of that would sound really cool, but watching it might be really fucking boring, like watching paint dry, because you're just kind of picking up one tool, using it for four seconds, and picking up another tool, using it for 20 minutes, and... I just found so much of these scenes to be really, really tedious. Something I find interesting about this film are those scenes in that this is not Ocean's Eleven. This is not Don Cheadle coming in and saying like, all right, we're going to blow this EMP. Casey Affleck, you're, you're going to be doing this. You're going to distract them here. They have a very simple problem that they can't solve, which is how do we get into an unbreakable safe? You absolutely cannot do the like, you know, stethoscope on the safe. That part's not going to work. No, you can't use explosives because it's gold and gold is incredibly uh, malleable and, uh, you know, it's not like it's the actual gold that's more valuable it's the scepter this thing can't be damaged and what they do i think it's probably one of the most fascinating parts of the film i love the plan of how they get the safe open and it's very clever there's one part of the safe that has a weak point and they're able to drill like a small little like two inch diameter hole not enough to get the scepter out but enough to get a hose in and they're gonna fill the thing with water and then they drop a small little grenade not an enormous grenade but it's simple physics if you have a safe 
full of water and just a simple little boom, the propulsion, there's nowhere for this to go, and it blows the door open while keeping the scepter safe. I thought that was very clever. You're right, it's a slower way, and I think you said it correctly, this is more likely how something like this is done. Sure. It doesn't make for the action-y Ocean's Eleven kind of uh, thrill. It was dialogue heavy, but uh, I did like it because I believed uh, Robert Taylor's character when he was like, there's no way to break into this. I was like, all right, so it's not going to be the conventional safe cracking. Right. I was thinking of our friend Darren when he got the idea of how to do that, of how to crack the safe. He's talking on the phone to Diane, his girlfriend, and then he's watching someone unload kegs into his bar or some bar and the keg drops off the truck and it explodes and that leads him to the idea of the the liquid and the pressure and everything and I was just thinking back to our conversation with Darren about Die Hard with a Vengeance where he was saying that he was annoyed about you know John McClane kind of seeing something or hearing something and then that led him to this conclusion It didn't really bother me that much in Die Hard with a Vengeance. It doesn't really bother me that much here. That's not my biggest problem with this movie. It just kind of made me think of like, oh, if Darren saw this, he would be pissed about that because he just so happened to see that keg fall. And that's what leads to the the realization of how to do it. Yeah, I mean, it is another trope in films, but it's a little bit more believable that he sees this. It's a very simple liquid under pressure explodes. You know, it's it's a trope that I don't love, but this one's a little better than the, uh, you know, six degrees to uh, finally coming to that conclusion. One thing we didn't talk about is uh, Frank Oz, the uh, director. Yeah. Um, you had actually mentioned uh, one of your favorite uh, heist films. Uh, what did you say it was? <laughs> the the Great Muppet Caper. Right. And Frank Oz is known primarily for uh, his work with the Muppets. Uh, he's done a lot of voices. Uh, famously Yoda. Uh-huh. Miss um, Piggy. Miss Piggy. He's directed a lot of famous films. Uh, sure. m- movies that we've uh, reviewed. Uh, he did The Muppet Takes Manhattan. What About Bob? Right. Uh, we reviewed that one he directed Bowfinger right right. he directed In and Out he's done a lot of genres yes he has and apparently he and Brando didn't get along and I read some quote that Frank Oz said about it where he seemed like he was being very honest and like kind of self-effacing that it wasn't Marlon Brando's fault he and I had different ideas of this character and he kind of had to come around to my view because I'm the director and there was some friction, but honestly, I didn't handle it that well. This is all coming from Frank Oz. And I appreciated that Frank Oz was being kind of diplomatic about it. Also, though, Marlon Brando did have a reputation, especially later in his career, where he just couldn't fucking be bothered with a lot of these movies. And he was just there for the paycheck and apparently he was calling Frank Oz Miss Piggy in a derogatory kind of way which is shitty you know when he's the director he's the boss and yeah you're Marlon fucking Brando but if you're on a set and Frank Oz is the director you got to show him some respect that's a pretty funny story. I mean, it's, it's just such disrespect. For, like, I'm just thinking Marlon Brando, you know, on the Brando version. Miss Piggy here trying to tell me how to act the scene. Right. You know, I'm just saying, I'm kind of, I'm kind of laughing. It's funny. In that story, I'm going to take Frank Oz's side. 
probably because <laughs> I like Yoda and Miss Piggy and like calling someone Miss Piggy, I would say is a compliment. Like Miss Piggy is an iconic character. And you got to give it to Frank Oz. I mean, he, he's voiced uh, Miss Piggy and Yoda. Th those are two of the best puppets ever, I think. Um, uh, Among the puppet pantheon, yeah. you, you are correct. Uh, you know, the Sesame Street Muppets uh, are among the only puppets I know, to be honest. Okay, well, there you go. But along those lines of Marlon Brando kind of being... Um, difficult on set. I found him to be very, very, very low energy throughout this movie. This was his last movie. He was getting old. He was definitely out of shape. He was not the the young heartthrob that uh, I want to see in some other movie. However, he was not alone in this movie for being low energy. I thought De Niro was very, very low energy. Ed Norton, too. I thought they were all kind of sleepwalking through this movie. Did you notice that? No, no, I didn't notice that. I, I don't think they're sleepwalking. I just think this is, a, you know, for professionals like them, this is an easy scene to do. Okay, all right. But what do you think about the movie as a whole, James? Do you think it stands the test of time? You know, for me, I really think that there's there's nothing new in this film. I've seen everything in this film that I've seen in other heist films and possibly in, in those done better. I think it's a serviceable film. It's in the heist genre. I think it's basically like a by-the-numbers SVU Law & Order episode. It's not great. It's not bad. And it's totally passable if you want to watch a heist film. And, you know, the, the cast makes it interesting. Edward Norton's always awesome. I mean, he kind of plays a scummy, uh, scumbag Edward Norton character, which is... He plays that role very well. I hate him in almost every film he's in, but that's I think that's the point. Right. Um, for me, the, the film does stand the test of time. It's a bunch of cliches, nothing new, but it does the job. This is kind of a not as good uh, Italian job. Perhaps a little bit too long. It, it clocks in at about two hours, yeah. and it should probably be an hour and 40 minutes. That, that That's my main criticism of it. It, uh, it stands the test of time just barely because it does what it needs to do. What do you think, Al? Does uh, 2001's The Score stand the test of time? Fuck no. Were we watching the same movie? This was awful. This was really, really tedious and boring and how, how did they make this movie so fucking boring? I mean, you have Robert De Niro, Ed Norton, Marlon Brando, Angela Bassett, Frank Oz. How, how is this movie so fucking bad? I didn't think this was the case, but at a certain point it crossed my mind of like, well, this movie came out in 2001. Maybe they were filming after September 11th and they were all just really fucking depressed and miserable and that's why they are just not even giving a shit about this movie and of course that's not true the movie came out in july of 2001 and was filmed before that so i didn't really think that was true but i was just trying to search for a theory what the fuck went wrong and maybe it was because brando and frank oz were fighting but that couldn't have been it De Niro is doing nothing. They're all sleepwalking. De Niro and Brando are legends. They have zero chemistry together. I like that scene when they're talking. You, you didn't like it? No. I thought they were both just completely phoning it in. I thought it was fun seeing, uh, you know, the Vito Corleones together. I, I mean, that was part of the hook of the movie. No, I thought that scene was really boring. 
I thought De Niro and Norton had zero chemistry. And yeah, they're supposed to be a little antagonistic, but two people on screen can have an antagonistic relationship and still have chemistry where you enjoy watching them bicker and you enjoy watching them kind of snip at each other. This just was really, really dull. The only scenes where people were acting were when you had De Niro and Angela Bassett together. The two of them have chemistry. They acted off of each other. And those two scenes, the scene where they kind of establish their relationship, and then the scene later where they get into the big fight about him taking the one last job, those are good scenes. Those are well acted. Those are interesting. The entire rest of the movie is boring. And then at the end of the movie, they're together. Nick and Diane go off into the sunset together. There's no resolution scene. There's no scene where they make up and they work out their differences and she agrees to stay with him. That's completely on the cutting room floor. We don't know what happens to Nick. We don't find out what happens to Jack. We don't find out what happens to Max. And there should be some kind of clue about what happens. I mean, I guess it's implied that he gets a scepter and then gives it to Max and Max isn't killed by this faceless other bad guy we're supposed to be worried about. I don't know, but also I really don't care. This movie is a shocking, shocking waste of talent. I can't believe that it's this bad. And I think not to belabor the point of comparing it to Ocean's Eleven, or even the Italian job, when you have an ensemble, that helps. When there's chemistry, when there's more people interacting with each other, watching De Niro break into that safe at the end, the air quotes thrilling climax, it's boring as fuck. There's no score, not even the bad score, which I hate. It's silent. You're not even seeing De Niro looking at the safe and sweat on his brow. How is he going to do it? He's wearing a full fucking jumpsuit. Most of that scene's probably a stand-in. If it's De Niro doing something really cool, you don't even fucking see it. The whole thing is anti-climax. So, no, I do not think this movie stands the test of time at all. I'd never heard of it. And for anyone listening who's never heard of it, don't bother. It's on Paramount Plus, but find something else. Watch old Beavis and Butthead episodes. That'll be a better use of your time. It kind of reminds me of one of these teams. uh, It happens to the Mets all the time. They get such a great uh, roster that's coming up. They spent all this money, and it's like, this is going to be the year. We got the number one pitcher, number one hitter, number one reliever. And then it's not like they get last place, but it's like, all right, you spend all that money, your number two salary in the entire league, and you got fourth place at six. It was like, uh, what a waste of talent. Uh, I get what you mean. With all this, it should have been kind of knocked out of the park, but serviceable enough for me. I'm kind of surprised that that you weren't just like completely falling asleep through this movie. I was struggling to get through it. You know, even though I didn't like the Italian job, I wasn't struggling to get through it. I was able to watch it. It had the the flash and pizzazz that I was expecting. I didn't think it was great, but that was way more entertaining. Yeah, I mean, that's got your slick, a Charlize Theron and Mark Wahlberg, and you got the comic relief of Seth Green. And uh, you're right, this is not that kind of film. Right, right. So that's going to do it for us this week. Come back next week when we talk about Star Trek First Contact. Yes! I envy you, Al. You've never seen Star Trek First Contact. It's possibly the best in the series. And I think if there's one Star Trek that you're going to begrudgingly admit you kind of 
maybe sort of kind of thought was kind of okay, I guess, (laughs) then it's going to be Star Trek First Contact. Wow, I mean, that is a ringing endorsement. Well, I mean, it's the best I'm going to get from you, which is actually going to be, you know, the most you'll give me. But I think I might have you with Star Trek First Contact. Okay, well, I will go into it with an open mind. Until then, we want to hear from you guys. Let us know what you think about De Niro and Brando and Norton and heist movies. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, X, Instagram, and Threads. You can also email us at testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.